0: Good morning, everyone. Good to see you all again. Good to be here with you. Uh, My wife and I must be so blessed, because last time I was here, y'all had cake. And y'all got cake again. (laughs) This is great. Man, you guys, I mean, congratulations, Frank. That is really exciting news, and praise God. That is a really wonderful reason to celebrate. Well, uh, before we get started, I would just love to uh, just go to the Lord in prayer. Would you join me, please? Heavenly Father, Lord, we, we praise you for many reasons to celebrate your goodness. Lord, we know that regardless of circumstances, your goodness does not change. However, it, it is hard. It is hard when we are faced with circumstances um, that really throw us off us off, uh, our, throw our eyes off you. We can begin to question your goodness, but we know through your word and by the testimony of the Spirit working in us, you are good. That the gospel is true and it gives us the power and the strength to endure all. Lord, I pray now that you would be with me as I share from your word Father, would you, do, would you do miracles that I cannot? Because what I'm asking you to do now is something that I am woefully insufficient to accomplish. But Lord, please, by your Spirit, be working in our hearts today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. All right, brothers and sisters, here we are again, back in the action of Matthew's Gospel, and in quite an action-packed section, after all, Uh, I just want to orient ourselves uh, to where we are in the story of Jesus' ministry. So the structure of Matthew's gospel is built around these alternating larger sections of narrative and teaching. The first major section of teaching, we finished last time I was here uh, with the Sermon on the Mount in chapters 5 through 7. And the second large teaching section begins in chapter 10. So here, in chapters 8 and 9, here we are in the second larger section of narrative or stories. Now, another important thing to note about Matthew's gospel is that he has organized his gospel not strictly chronologically, as we would kind of expect in our modern concept of narrative storytelling, but he favored, instead, to organize his presentation of Jesus' life more topically. We see this, for example, in chapter 13, the third large section of teaching which groups together nearly all of the parables in Matthew's gospel. And here, in chapters 8 and 9, we have the biggest concentration of miracles and healings in Matthew's gospel. Now, I don't just tell you this because these are some fun facts or because I want to justify my seminary degree to you. Uh, No, Matthew organized his gospel in this way for specific reasons so that we might learn specific things about Jesus. Now one thing I believe Matthew is doing is he is balancing uh, Jesus' miraculous ministry and his teaching ministry as both necessary and important components of his time on earth. Also, and more significantly, Matthew organized his gospel topically so that each larger section would teach one greater lesson and make one unified point regarding jesus think about it like this in this unfolding story matthew is building a case proving that jesus is the messiah of israel the one who has come to save us and each larger section of the story contributes a fundamental truth working to prove that point In the previous major section, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus tells the multitudes that the righteousness necessary to enter the kingdom of heaven is only found in him, the one who fulfills the law and the prophets. So in this section, filled with miraculous stories, what is the fundamental point Matthew's making? What are we supposed to learn about Jesus in chapters 8 and 9? His authority. Jesus' unparalleled divine authority. How do we see this? How does Matthew build his case, so to speak? Well, we see this in how chapters 8 and 9 are organized. This larger section can actually be divided further into three groups of three miracles. Three groups of three. Each concluding with a short dialogue. And in each of these three groups of three, there is an escalation, a growing demonstration of Jesus' authority and power. Let's look back at this. So chapter 8 begins with the healing of a Jewish man afflicted with leprosy. Then the servant of a Roman centurion is healed at a distance. And he's a Gentile, no less. Then Jesus heals a great many people of various afflictions after healing Peter's mother-in-law. And the first cycle of three is concluded with a short dialogue in verses 18 through 22 regarding what it means to follow Jesus. All right, so this brings us to the cycle of three that we close with our text today. In chapter 8, 23 through 27, Jesus demonstrates his authority and power over the natural world by causing a storm to cease at an instant. Then, in verses 28 through 34, he demonstrates his power and authority over the supernatural realm by casting out demons who are tormenting two men of Gadara. So we come now to our text today in Matthew 9, 1 through 8. If you haven't already, please turn there now and stand if you are able for the reading of God's word. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. You may be seated. So in this third miracle story, what do we learn about Jesus' authority. That he has the power and authority to forgive sin. Now, if you are a Christian, you may be thinking, uh, Chris, I, I mean, I kind of already knew that. That's why I'm here. And even if you aren't a Christian, you may be thinking similarly that you have heard before that if you believe in Jesus, your sins will be forgiven. Well, my hope today is that you will hear and understand, maybe for the first time, or maybe in a fresh way, the tremendous magnitude of this reality. And although this story might seem straightforward, it is anything but, with several ironic twists throughout it. So that's where we are headed. We have three ironic twists in this story to tease out because each ironic twist points us to an important truth which informs where our priorities ought to be. And for those of you who need a refresher from high school English, irony is all about the subversion of expectations. Something is ironic when an event occurs or something is said that is contrary to what the normally expected result would be. And this story, eight verses, is full of irony. First, we will see this in the men who first come to Jesus for healing. Second, we will see this in the scribes' response to Jesus. And third, we will see this uh, in, the men, uh, in Jesus' response to the scribes. So, let's look back at the text. Verse 1 says, And getting into the boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. So here we have the scene change. After leaving the region of the Gadarenes, Jesus and his disciples cross the Sea of Galilee to his own city, not of Nazareth, uh, but of Capernaum, the city where uh, Jesus did much of his public ministry. And in verse 2, the action begins. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. So we see here a man on a bed, or presumably something uh, more akin to a stretcher, being carried by others to Jesus to be healed of his paralysis. First, let's address the question of what it means that Jesus saw their faith. What exactly did he, how did he see their faith? Well, to answer this question, it it is first important to note that this is the faith of all of them, not just the paralyzed man individually. Jesus saw their faith, not just his faith. And that faith was demonstrated because they brought this man to Jesus, believing that Jesus could and expected that he would heal this man. And seeing their faith, Demonstrated by their coming to him, Jesus responds. However, before we address how Jesus initially responds, I want to make a point here regarding the nature of faith and God's response to our faith. Some people come to this passage and others like it and try to say, see, if we go to Jesus in faith, we should expect him to heal. But this is not the case. And if they merely read more of the Gospels, this this becomes clearly not true. Jesus performs miracles for many reasons. Many, many reasons. He performed miracles, yes, in response to faith. But also, and more often, to instill or produce faith. Yes, sometimes... Lack of faith does prevent a miracle. You can see that in Matthew 13, 58. That doesn't mean miracles happen because of the amount of faith we can just conjure up. Because we will see that Jesus heals even when there is little to no faith present in the one healed. So remember that whether or not the Lord heals you or one you love, when you ask him, either result is meant to instill greater faith in you and those around you. Because another thing we see in this verse is that our faith is indeed visibly demonstrated by our actions. Consider how faith has already been defined so far in Matthew's Gospel. We have already seen that our identification with the person Jesus, marked by our faith and demonstrated in our actions, is the only way to enter the kingdom of heaven. But Jesus has also explained that faith includes practical trust in God to provide all we need. So remember that others will learn where we place our trust based on where we go. Your faith in Jesus can and will be seen by others. So, will they see you going to Him or somewhere else for what you need? And will they see your faith remain in Jesus regardless of the outcome? And speaking of outcomes, here is our first ironic twist. As Jesus' response was most assuredly Not the outcome these people desired or expected. Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Can you imagine the look on this paralyzed man's face? Uh, Probably confused, to say the least. But here is the irony this man and his friends thought that obviously this man's greatest need was that he could not walk and he needed to be healed. But no, they were were wrong. That, That wasn't his greatest need. And yet still, Jesus did indeed heal him, but first, by the forgiveness of his sin. His paralysis was not his greatest need. His greatest need, and our greatest need, is to be forgiven of our sin committed against a holy God. And any other need we have even though they may be hard and indeed very serious. Next to our need for forgiveness, they are all lesser needs. And it is not for any superfluous reason that Jesus now addresses the need for forgiveness, for He knows exactly who is watching. Look at verse 3. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. Jesus seizes this opportunity to intentionally demonstrate another facet, another aspect of his authority, ultimately pointing to the reality that he is, in fact, the Messiah. Matthew has already told his readers that Jesus will come to save us from our sin in chapter 1, verse 21. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And here we see the building proof of that claim. Also, Matthew has already pointed to one of the purposes of the Messiah's coming in chapter 8, verse 17, that Jesus came to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. That's certainly the only reason that Jesus came. And this is further developed in the following section. Look at uh, chapter 9, verse 13 with me. Jesus says he came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So here, in his response to this paralyzed man, Jesus intentionally heightens the controversy over his identity. And it certainly didn't go unnoticed as the scribes then silently accuse Jesus of blasphemy. Yet in what way does Jesus blaspheme according to the scribes? Um, Blasphemy would normally include a slandering of the name of God. So in what way could Jesus have even been blaspheming? Now there are several things to consider here with what Jesus is saying by this declaration of forgiveness. So track with me here. First, notice that Jesus says this not in the active voice, but in the passive voice. Meaning, and I'll illustrate this, that Jesus does not say, I forgive you, or God forgives you, but he he says instead, your sins are forgiven. Now, that seems like a rather small difference. So what would be significant about that? Wouldn't it be more controversial to say, I forgive your sins? Surprisingly, no. By saying your sins are forgiven, Jesus is implying that he has knowledge of something that only God can do. And even more specifically, this way of talking about forgiveness is, in the passive voice specifically, is used rather uncommonly in the Old Testament, and in fact is only used with reference to uh, the sacrifices of the sin offering and the guilt offering. This is repeated through Leviticus chapters 4 through 6 when the Lord is giving the instructions for these offerings. For example, in Leviticus 5.10, it says, And the priest shall make atonement for him for the sin that he has committed, and he shall be forgiven. So Jesus makes this declaration of forgiveness. But he is not a Levite. They're not in the temple. There's no sacrifice. The scribes listening are befuddled. Because from their perspective, on what basis could he possibly make this claim? And yet, there is still another correction Jesus makes to the scribes' terrible theology. See, one of the features of rabbinic theology at this time was the belief that if someone was suffering, it was punishment for sin. We see this reflected in the disciples' question to Jesus regarding a man born blind in John 9, 2. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents that he was born blind? But we know from what Jesus teaches in that story and in many other passages in scripture that there is often no connection between one's physical circumstances of suffering and it being a direct result as punishment for sin. That's not how God works. There is no such thing as Christian karma. There is no you sin and God's going to smack you on the wrist kind of relationship. But the scribes here don't know that. They think the opposite. So Jesus intentionally declares this man forgiven without healing him. Why? partly because of what the scribes would have expected. They're thinking, uh, he's still paralyzed Jesus. If God really did forgive his sin, he wouldn't still be paralyzed. But the fact that his sin was forgiven, even though he hadn't yet been healed of his paralysis, teaches them and teaches us about the relationship between sin and suffering. And we need this correction too, because we're so easily tempted To think that when something bad happens to us, it is because God is punishing us. This kind of thinking is pervasive and it's all over the world. How many stories maybe you've heard of, of a child born with some kind of birth defect that is believed to be cursed? It's horrible. Or consider how you may have heard, or maybe this has happened to you, That some person has said so-and-so died or was injured or got a disease because of a particular sin they committed. Or maybe when you have grieved the loss of a loved one, you may have believed the lie that God is punishing you. But none of these things are true. They're not true. God is not punishing you. Let's remind ourselves of Romans 8.1 that those who are in Christ are now under no condemnation. Therefore, God does not treat us according to what our sins deserve and does not punish us according to what we have done. So let's learn from Jesus' actions in this story as the scribes also needed to learn and understand the relationship between our suffering and sin. Each of these reasons are building to one fundamental reason for the scribe's silent accusation of blasphemy. Maybe, maybe you've already been thinking it. Only God can forgive sin. And Jesus is claiming to do something only God has the authority to do. And even if you're thinking, well, Jesus didn't say that. He forgives this man's sin, just that his sins were forgiven. Even saying that doesn't get around the fact that Jesus would be speaking for God with knowledge of something only God can do. That is why the scribes accused Jesus of blasphemy. But this is our second ironic twist the scribes are thinking only God has the authority to forgive sin. And here's the irony. That's true. Only God can forgive sin. But little do they know they're looking at God in the flesh. And I love how Matthew is even teasing this out for us in how specifically he phrases what the scribes are saying. What does it say? This man is blaspheming. Well, that would be true if this man was just a man. But he's the God-man, the Messiah. And as the God-man, he does have the authority to forgive sin. And this is the essential point this story is making, that Jesus has the authority to forgive sin. Why? Because he is no ordinary man. He is God made flesh. And on the basis of that authority, this man's sins are forgiven and our sins are forgiven. When we come to Jesus in faith, believing in who he has said he is, we can trust on his authority that our sins are forgiven and we can have a reconciled relationship with the holy God. But this story is not yet over. Yet so far, Jesus has set up this interaction perfectly to demonstrate his authority to forgive sin. So let's recap. We have some people carrying a paralyzed man who is still paralyzed and likely very confused. And we have a group of angry scribes who really have no idea who they are dealing with. Look at verse 4. But Jesus, knowing or perceiving their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven or rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and went home. So now Jesus does heal the paralyzed man. And it is important to note that it was necessary to do so in order for him to properly demonstrate his authority not only to heal, but also to forgive sin. So this healing accomplishes three things, makes three points. First, and most importantly, it demonstrates that Jesus did have, in fact, have the authority to forgive sin. And second, it assured the previously paralyzed man that his sins had indeed been forgiven. And third, it refuted the scribe's accusation of blasphemy. So Jesus heals him. But before he did, he poses this question. For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk? So which is it? Which is easier? Is it easier to say your sins are forgiven? Or is it easier to say, rise and walk? What's the answer? Well, It depends on how you look at it. And this is also where we find our third ironic twist in the story. Here's the thing. On one hand, it is easier to merely say your sins are forgiven. There is nothing that would need to happen. I could just say it to anyone. Your sins are forgiven. But there's nothing that anyone could do that could confirm or deny whether what I said was true or not. It is easier to just say because if instead you spoke to a paralyzed man, get up and walk, there would need to be the visible proof of him getting up and walking. So yes, in one sense, it is easier to just say that your sins are forgiven. But this is just viewing this question as a human with a human perspective. Because on the other hand, from Jesus' divine perspective, it is easier to say, rise and walk, than it is to say, your sins are forgiven. Because as the God-man, when Jesus says these things, they happen. But we do not see as God sees. And because we don't see as God sees, we miss the impact of this story. If we are only astonished when we see the man stand up, what does it mean that we've missed? We've missed the first miracle. We have missed the truly mind blowing fact that this man's sins were forgiven by a holy God. That is what Jesus is getting at with this question. We think, yeah, of course. Of course it's harder to make a paralyzed man walk. I can't do that. Guess what? You can't forgive sins either, bro. Over the course of history, God has given a few men the power and authority to perform miracles. Even after Jesus' time on earth, Peter in Acts 3 grabs a paralyzed man by the hand and helps him stand, and he is healed. But no man has ever ever been given, or will ever, be given the authority to forgive sin. Only God has the authority to forgive sin. So when Jesus responds to the scribes, You mad, guys? What's easier? I already did the thing that required more power and authority. But to prove that he did have the authority to forgive sin, he performed the easier miracle and healed the man. That is the irony. We see the healing and we miss the greater miracle. We think that making the paralyzed walk is greater, but no, the greater miracle is the forgiveness of sin. That is the greater miracle. The fact that a holy God, perfectly righteous, would forgive our sin is greater. We cannot forget this fact that our forgiveness is a miracle. And we must not lose the wonder of what has been accomplished in our justification. Do we take it for granted? If you've been a Christian for a long time, have you forgotten the joy and the sweetness of your salvation? Does considering the forgiveness Jesus purchased for you no longer make your heart fill with adoration for God? We must not forget this. We need to be reminded that our entrance into the Christian life is the greatest miracle we will ever experience. But how is this? Why have we forgotten this? Because we have neglected the holiness of God. We have forgotten how great a length God went to purchase sinners to make them holy. God the Son left the throne of heaven and became a man to live and suffer and die, even though all we had ever done was spit in his face and curse his name, also that we could be forgiven and live in reconciled relationship with him. We have forgotten the greatness of the miracle of our salvation because we have forgotten the severity of our sin. And our sin is so severe because of the greatness and holiness or set-apartness of the one whom we have sinned against. And forgetting this is a very serious thing. Forgetting the majesty of God, forgetting the seriousness of sin, forgetting the wonder of our forgiveness, and forgetting the miracle of our salvation has already and will continue to cause a great many problems in our lives and in the church my wife and I have just recently started rereading A.W. Tozer's classic book, The Knowledge of the Holy. It is a tremendous book, and I highly recommend it to you. In order to illustrate this point, I would like to read you a portion uh, from the preface of this book where Tozer explains his reason for writing it. There he says, The low view of God entertained almost universally among Christians in the, is the cause of a hundred lesser evils everywhere among us. A whole new philosophy of the Christian life has resulted from this one basic error in our religious thinking. With our loss of the sense of the majesty has come the further loss of religious awe and consciousness of the divine presence. We have lost our spirit of worship and our ability to withdraw inwardly to meet God in adoring silence. Modern Christianity is simply not producing the kind of Christian who can appreciate or experience the life of the Spirit. The words, be still and know that I am God, mean next to nothing to the self-confident, bustling worshiper in this middle period of the 20th century. The only way to recoup our spiritual losses is to go back to the cause of them and make such corrections as the truth warrants. The decline of the knowledge of the holy has brought on our troubles. A rediscovery of the majesty of God will go a long way toward curing them. It is impossible to keep our moral practices sound and our inward attitudes right while our idea of God is erroneous or inadequate. If we would bring back spiritual power to our lives, we must begin to think of God more nearly as He is. We must relearn and treasure deeply who it is that has saved us from our sin. Consider His mercy, His patience, and his grace that atones for sin and justifies the undeserving wicked. Consider his compassion who looks upon this paralyzed man laying on a stretcher, sees his faith, and not only heals him, but first addresses his greatest need, even though he has no idea that it is his greatest need. We must value rightly what is in fact greater. What requires the greater power and greater authority to do. It will change how we live our lives. And time does not allow me to describe all the ways that understanding this would change our lives. But I will try to illustrate it in a few ways. Understanding that the forgiveness of our sin is the greater miracle completely changes how we view and what we expect out of the Christian life. How does it do that? I'm glad you asked. First, it prevents us from becoming what I am going to call if-only Christians. It prevents us from becoming if-only Christians. Now, if-only Christians are those Christians who live their lives as Christians constantly putting conditions before God. They say, if only God did this, then I would do that. If only God did this for me, if only God performed this miracle, then I would do this for Him. Then I would trust Him more. Then I would obey Him in this way. If only God healed my son, then I would live differently. If only God gave me this job, then I would give and serve as he has commanded me to. If only God would do this miracle for my husband, then he would be happy and love me more. If only God would X, Y, or Z, and on and on it goes. The problem with if-only Christians is that they think that they need things that they do not need, and they do not recognize what they already have or what has already been done for them. I'll say that again. The problem with if-only Christians is that they think they need things that they do not need, and they do not recognize what they already have or what has already been done for them. One of my favorite verses in all the Bible is 2 Peter 1-3. And it begins this way. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Did you hear that? Jesus' power has already given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Hmm. But what are all the things that pertain to life and godliness? Is it everything? Because I'm pretty sure it's everything. Do you understand that? God has already given you everything you need for life and godliness. But a lot of Christians do not understand this. They do not understand that in Christ and by the Spirit, we already have everything we need. So many Christians are miracle hunters, thinking that miraculous displays of God's power are more important than the power of God in preaching the gospel. So many Christians sit around thinking they're just one miracle away from having the life they've always wanted but they do not understand what they have already been given. Everything that pertains to life and godliness, the forgiveness of sin and eternal life with God. And don't, do not misunderstand me, brothers and sisters. Do not misunderstand me. Do not think that I am saying or insinuating that this means that God does not perform miracles. He does. Amen, He does. God can and does answer our prayers in ways that makes doctors scratch their head and say, I don't know where the tumor went. But what does it mean when he does that? It's all gravy. It's bonus. It's more whipped cream on top of the salvation Sunday people. But understanding that forgiveness is the greater miracle also allows us to continue to rejoice and praise God when he doesn't answer our prayers in the way we might have hoped. It gives us the power to endure suffering when he doesn't heal because we know he has already accomplished for us the greatest miracle of our salvation. And this changes how we pray and how we respond when God answers our prayers. And this actually changes not just how we pray for ourselves, but especially how we pray for others. When you are praying for someone else, if they are not a Christian, meaning that they have not experienced the miracle of forgiveness, then praying for their salvation is not only what you should be doing, but it is the greatest thing that you could possibly be praying for them. That may seem obvious to some of you, but it becomes harder and harder to remember that in view of what other things you might also be praying for that person. What if that person were just in a serious accident or they were diagnosed with a terminal illness? Will you still be praying for their salvation? That it is more important and greater than praying for their healing? It is a hard thing to remember and believe when circumstances are dire and difficult. Nevertheless, praise God if he answers your prayer and that person is healed. But we must remember the greater miracle. Because what is the miraculous healing of someone who has not been forgiven? This is the prolonging of a short life that ends with them being eternally separated from God. And let's say that God does grant them salvation, and yet they still die. Even though we still grieve the loss, we must remember that our prayer for them has still been answered, and they will spend eternity with God. And even when a Christian dies, even though we are asking God to heal, remembering that they are now with Jesus is not just a soft consolation. It isn't just a pillow to comfort us in our sorrow or just a security blanket to cover us when we are afraid. Remembering the miracle of salvation is how we rejoice even when we grieve and how we have peace even amidst great sorrow and loss. Right now, my wife and I are going through a season of prayer like this I've just, that I've just discussed. Annabelle's best friend since they were three years old, her mother is dying of cancer. She has been seeking treatment now for almost three years, and she has not been healed. At this point, she is in hospice care, and her family is with her so that they can be with her in her dying moments. Even now, we can expect at any time to receive a text notifying us that she has died. And she is not an old woman. She is not even 60. And already Annabelle has spent hours and hours on the phone with her best friend trying to comfort her and point her to Jesus. You see, neither Annabelle's best friend nor her mother nor anyone in their family Um, our christians and yes while we have been praying for healing over the last few years we have also been praying for her salvation asking god that he would heal her and as it seems that god is not going to heal her we have been desperately praying asking that god would speak to her even now and grant her forgiveness We have asked God that he would also use this to save Annabelle's best friend, uh, her father, and others. And we ask this because we know that God is the only one with the power and authority to forgive sin. And we can rejoice in him regardless of the outcome. I want to leave you with this, brothers and sisters. I want to leave you with... uh, a litmus test, if you will, to check yourself to see if you have forgotten which is truly the greater miracle. When you get a front row seat to God's miraculous power in your life or another's life, how do you respond? Are you impressed more with God's power to heal sickness or injury? Or do you respond with joy and wonder? at God's power to save sinners. What gets you more excited? Now, I know some of you might be thinking that I'm just spinning my wheels or that this is an unnecessary comparison. But the fact is, I have known Christians who are more excited and grateful that God helped them pay to fix their car or get surgery for their sick cat than they were when God saved someone they knew. That is a miswiring of their affections. So what are you more concerned about? In what way are you more excited to see God's power in your life? Are you just praying for God to fix your problems? Or are you praying that you would get to see his power at work in the salvation of people? Evaluate your response to these things and ask God to help you treasure more deeply his power and love that forgave you. Look again with me at the text. Look at verse 7, please. And he rose and went home. There it is. There's the miracle. Now let's read how the people respond to it. Verse 8. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. Even at the end of this story, the theme of authority is highlighted for us yet again. And we even have a a bonus piece of irony that the crowd thinks that God has given this authority to men when in actuality it has only been given to the God-man. But even the crowd is glorifying God not only because of Jesus' authority to heal, but because of his authority to forgive sin. So, we have seen three ironic twists in this story. We saw this in the expectation of the paralyzed man. We saw this in the accusation of the scribes. And we saw this in the question that Jesus asked them. How ironic it would be then if we, having experienced the forgiveness of sin, did not continue to praise God and recognize our forgiveness as the greater miracle. Heavenly Father, we praise your holy name. May it grow more holy holy in our minds. May we praise you rightly. May our affections be ordered rightly. That we would recognize and worship you for the great power and authority that you have in the accomplishing of our salvation that you have justified us, that you have declared us righteous and forgiven our sin so that we can live in relationship with you. Lord, we praise you for all the ways that you manifest your power in our lives, for the, the healing of those that we love and care about and have asked that, you've, that you would, and we praise you for answered prayer. But help us to have our priorities right. Help us to value what is greater as greater, let us not lose sight of the joy, the power, and the glory that we ought to look into when we think and consider what Christ has done for our salvation. And we pray this in his holy name, his precious name. Amen. The charge is this. In the story of Matthew 9, verses 1-8, through we learn that Jesus not only has authority over the natural realm, not only authority over the supernatural realm, but He has the authority to forgive sin. And in this story of healing, we saw that there were several ironic twists that point us to the truth and to where our priorities ought to be. This paralyzed man was brought to Jesus in faith that He would be healed. And Jesus did indeed heal him. But first of his greater need than of his lesser need. Then the scribes accused Jesus of blasphemy because he declared something that only God has the authority to declare. Yet, little did they know that they were looking at God in flesh. Lastly, even though it is easier to merely say that your sins are forgiven, the deeper reality is that is this, that even compared to making the paralyzed walk, forgiveness of sin is the greater miracle. So remember that when we ask God to heal those we love and to perform miracles in our lives, that the greatest miracle we can pray for and celebrate is the forgiveness of sin by a holy God. I leave you with this. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us